Hey, this is Cooper Smith. I'm one of the student worship pastors at Eastview, and I'm honored to welcome you to our Eastview Students High School podcast. We hope this is encouraging, inspiring, and helpful for you in your walk with Christ. Enjoy the message. Good morning, high school. Oh, I'm going to need more than that from you guys, all right? Good morning. There it is. Hey, uh, first of all, you're almost there, all right? Some of you are like, oh, this year has to be over with school, and some of your teachers are feeling the exact same thing, and it's okay, man. You guys, you've almost made it, so congratulations. Um, Before I get to the text, this does relate to the text, actually, but before I get to the text this morning, um, there's this moment in our text that that some nonverbal communication happens. Like, Jesus is communicating in this without using words, And I think you guys are an expert in what happens in our text this morning. So I want to talk about that for just a second. Sometimes we use our breath to communicate. Like if you gasp, you're inhaling. You ever notice this? Like, try it. Not not that much. (laughs) It's like somebody just swallowed an insect over here. Right? When you gasp, so like somebody tells you something shocking and there's that (gasps) factor that happens there. There's also that, I don't even know that we have a word for it, but there's there's that you exhale with an exclamation to communicate disgust. It's not a sigh. It's this. Try it. You know how, um, you know, if you're wanting to ask somebody out on a date and they're like, what's the worst that can happen? They can just say no. No, the worst that can happen is that noise comes out of the other person's mouth, okay? Uh, uh, okay? I don't know what the word is for that thing. But the third one I know that we do with our breath is a sigh, is the other one. And that is just... Okay? You want to add to it? You add a little bit of an eye roll where you're like... Try it. Oh, some of you guys are experts. Some of you guys could teach lessons in this. All right. If you want to add extra disgust, you can also throw your head back and do the eye roll and sigh at the same time. Give it a try. So let's practice this together. I wrote down some phrases that I know would, uh, I'd get this. Hey guys, I'm going to add some extra homework over your spring break. No, 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 no. Let me see it. There we go. Okay, hey, don't forget to do the dishes before you go to bed. Uh, we're gonna have some new, we're gonna have some new rules that we're gonna have to establish for your phone. (sighs) All right, okay. You guys got it. That's the way it works. Um, the core question I want to get at this morning, and I'm gonna set the sighing aside for just a second. The core question I want to get at this morning relates to everybody in the room. Okay, the core question I want to get at this morning that Jesus is actually gonna take us to this morning is, why does it seem like God is so hard to find. Why does it seem like it's so difficult to relate to him, to understand him? Jim mentioned this. I normally work with college students, teach college students. College students are my world, all right? And I can't tell you how many of them are asking that question. Why does it seem like God is so hard to find? Why does it seem like God is so hard to uncover? Why does it seem like, I don't know, almost like, It's almost like he's playing hide-and-seek, and and he's really, really good at hide-and-seek. He's like playing God-level hide-and-seek, and and I just can't, can't find him. I can't uncover him. Why can't he be tangible? Why can't he be present? Why can't the life of faith be easier? Why can't he just appear? Why can't he just do something miraculous in front of me? Why doesn't he just reveal himself that way? 
Like some, I don't know how many of you have thought about that process, but when it comes to faith, when it comes to this idea of following God, there's this question of why does it seem like it's so difficult? That's the question that our text drives us toward this morning, okay? So to be clear, before we even get there, I just want to talk to you about God's posture to you. Talk about postures this morning a little bit. God's posture to you is super clear in Scripture. But what do we see in Genesis? We see Genesis... In Genesis, when he creates us, he's walking around with us. There's no hide and seek. It talks about him with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, like they're going for a walk in the garden. That's the picture that we have in Genesis 2.8. You're like, yeah, Ben, but after that we sinned and we got thrown out of the garden and we're separated from God. You're right, but not separated from God like he washed his hands and he's done with us because if you flip forward just a little bit in Genesis, you see the story of Abraham. Is God done with us? No. He's making promises to Abraham, saying, I'm going to be with you. What does he do with Moses? He meets Moses face to face. He leads his people through the desert, through the river, through all these different spaces, and he's revealing himself throughout the whole thing. He's revealing himself through the law, through the life of Moses. What's God's posture toward them? Is he, is he good riddance, done, hide and seek? No, he's like, he actually is a fire and pillar of cloud in the center of their camp. He's not good at hiding, you guys. If God's playing God-level hide-and-seek, he's really bad at it. Well, then you move forward. He gives us Jesus, perhaps the greatest sign of all. God himself puts skin on, comes down, hangs out with us, helps us understand the character. What We look at the New Testament. What does Peter say about the nature of God, his posture to us? It says that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants everybody to find him. He wants to be found. What's the picture of God in Revelation? It's like a giant party, a wedding party, a feast. He wants everybody to be with him. He wants connection with us. So if our main question today is, why is it so hard to find God? Which is a good question. And I'm guessing you've wondered it. Then how do we set that right next to this truth that God is seeking us? That he wants to be found by us? That he's, he's in some way partnered with us? Well, let's talk about our posture to him. That's his posture toward us. Loves us, wants to know us, is seeking us, is active and working in the world around us. Let's talk about our posture toward him. To do that, I'm going to illustrate with some stools, okay? And this is a spectrum. And I'm going to ask you today to identify where you're at on this spectrum. Okay? This stool over here, I'm going to call hostile to God. If I'm sitting in this stool... Um, I'm hostile to him. I don't care about God. I don't want to know what God does, thinks, is. My heart is closed in this way to him in the sense that it it just doesn't matter to me. I'm hostile to who he is. This isn't being critical. This isn't having a critical mind. There's nothing wrong with that. This is hostile. I am opposed. Whatever God is, I don't want a part of it. Okay? Walking over here, if you're here and that describes you in the room, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I believe God has some things to say to you. Stool in the middle here is indifferent. I, I don't really know. I got a lot of other stuff to worry about. I just This whole conversation about God, that's somebody else's thing. All right? My parents showed up to church. I'm expected to sit in this room. I'm here. What else do you want from me? All right? 
God exists, God doesn't exist. There's just sort of an exhausted agnosticism in this chair. Whatever, whatever, I don't know who God is. And now there's a world on either side of this, and again, these aren't the only three chairs. There's probably a million others that sit in here, but where are you in this spectrum? Because on the far side here, what I have is seeking. It still may not be finding God. I may not still fully understand who he is or may not even kind of be in that place in my life. But what does it mean to be in a place where my heart wants that? God, I want to know who you are. I want to understand your character. I want to know why you put me on this planet. I want to know if there's a purpose that's larger than myself. I want to know if my pain makes sense. I want to know if my story matters in the grand scheme of things at all. God, help me understand this. And so again, this morning, as we, as we think through the text, I'm, just, I'm trying to give you some, some filters to pour the text through before we get to it. I would love, I have been praying all week that you would place yourself, it doesn't have to be in one of these chairs, but I've been praying this week that you would find yourself somewhere in this spectrum and say, God, help me understand where I'm at. Help me understand my own heart. No one can do that work for you in place of you. This is a you thing between you and the Lord. Where are you at on this spectrum? It's an important thing for us to lean into. So the text we have comes out of Mark 8, and it's short. It's a really short passage here. And uh, I'm going to give you some context for it afterwards because that's important. But the idea here is that the Pharisees come and talk to Jesus. And in Mark 8, 11 through 13, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And you know what Jesus' response is? He sighed deeply in his spirit that this, what happens here is the one thing that makes the God of the universe go, oh. okay? So they come to him. It says they seek from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So apparently what the Pharisees do in this moment (laughs) triggers Jesus enough where the response that they get is, why do you seek this? Gets in a boat and leaves. Response we have from from the God of the universe to this question. So a couple of quick observations. Why Why is it the sigh? Why does Jesus sigh in this moment? Is it because they asked for a miracle? No. Other people ask for miracles. Many, many, many times he performs miracles. Jesus has no problem with doing a miracle at all. Okay? So something else is going on in this moment. It's not just that they came there to ask him for a miracle because other people do that. I think the other thing I want you to notice in this text is that we have three little clues as to why Jesus might be sighing here. And it is the posture of the Pharisees. It's not hard for us to, if we're looking at the spectrum of the chairs here, it's not hard to put the Pharisees in a chair. They are firmly right here. What does our text say? It says that they are there to argue. They come there to argue with him. They are there to seek a sign. Matthew actually uses the phrase, they came to demand a sign from him. They demanded a sign of Jesus in that moment. And the third thing it says in our text is that they're there to test him. So it's safe to say that when we think about the posture of the Pharisees in this, this is the chair that they're sitting in. They come with a hostile heart toward Jesus and they demand a sign from him. Prove who you are, Jesus. Dance. 
Dance for us. We've heard other people talk about the Jesus show. Do it. Do that right now. Maybe this helps us understand why when Scripture talks about signs, it's usually negative. I mean, Jesus, again, when Matthew talks about this moment, Jesus' response is, a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. That's what he says to him. And what do we see in Matthew 4? Matthew 4 is the moment when Satan comes to test Jesus. And do you remember what one of the tests that, that he says is, hey, throw yourself off this place and let the angels rescue you. And that'll be a great and miraculous sign. And Jesus says in that moment, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy in that. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, it ain't okay for you to test God this way, for you to make demands of him. And when Jesus says that, he, the, the verse that he's quoting in Deuteronomy, if you want, if for the Old Testament nerds in the room, this is for you, okay? Because it actually, the full verse is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, okay, so most of you are like, I have no idea what we're talking about here with Massa. Massa is this place where when God miraculously helped all of Israel get out of Egypt. So I want you to think about this. Try to put yourself in this place. I mean, it's, it's impossible to do, but try, okay? Those people had been enslaved for 400 years. God rescues them from the most powerful nation in the world at the time. They walk through the Red Sea. What would it be like, you guys? Wall of water on both sides. God doing this miracle. It's undeniable God's out in front of them. Undeniable. Then they get into the desert and they're thirsty. And what do the people do? They wish they were back in Egypt. They demand, actually, food and water. They say, well, if we're going to starve in the desert, at least we had bad, crappy food, but we had that back in Egypt. Moses goes to God and says, we, I need something miraculous because the people are going to kill me. That's how bad it gets. Let me find the actual passage for you here. It's in Exodus 17, 7. If you want to read the story, it's Exodus uh, 17, 2 through 7. But God, or Moses has to go to God and say, hey, they're literally going to kill me if, if we don't do something here. And God says, hey, strike the rock, water will come out of it, I'll take care of it. Okay? So that is what happens. And at the end of that passage, it says, he called the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is God among us or not? What's the heart of the people at Massa? Hostile. It certainly is not indifferent. It certainly is not seeking God and who it is. It is demanding something from him, demanding miracles from him. I have two problems with demanding a miracle from God. The first one is it inverts authority. Who's in charge? It ain't me. It ain't me, you guys. And when I go to God and I say, hey, you do this, and you do this on this timeline, and then maybe I'll obey. You do this, and then and you do it on my timeline, and maybe I'll follow you. You show up this way, and then maybe I will consider actually trusting you. The problem is the kingship belongs to me if I'm the one who has the ability to give the God of the universe orders. He's just a vending machine. I put in my nickels. I expect to get my, my, the thing that I wanted to begin with. He's just a genie in the bottle at that point, right? 
has to obey my command. That ain't the way it works with the king of the universe. The problem with sitting in this seat or sitting in this seat and saying, God, dance. You do what I say. And he's like, it just doesn't work that way. Why did Jesus sigh deeply in his spirit and leave? Inverted authority. The Pharisees weren't in charge of him. They did not have the right to demand a sign from him. And he knew in that, no matter what he did, even if he did the miracle, it wouldn't be accepted. And that leads us to the second problem we have with demanding miracles of God. Okay, the first one is inverted authority. The second one is that miracles fade, you guys. Does that sound weird? Miracles fade. That's what we see over and over and over in Scripture. Do you know what happened just before and just after our our text today in Mark 8? Just before this, Jesus feeds 4,000 people miraculously from barely any food. He does this miracle twice, once with 5,000, once with 4,000. Same uh, miracle, but unbelievable. And the disciples have just witnessed this. So he goes from that miraculous feeding straight to this conversation where he gets in a boat, and then do you know what happens? Listen to this. I'll read it. They began discussing with one another, this is the disciples, the fact that they had no bread. They're hungry. Okay? They just, might I remind you, watched Jesus multiply bread. The dude who has power over food is with them in the boat on their little trip. Okay? So they're turning this into an object lesson, and Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, having eyes you don't see and having ears you don't hear? And don't you remember When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? And so he goes through this process of helping them remember the miracle that he did. And he ends it with, they said to him, seven, and he says to them, do you not yet understand? You guys, this was hours probably. But that miracle had faded in their head because they were hungry again. We see it with the people of God who are wandering in the desert. God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But when they got hungry again, those miracles faded. They began to doubt them. Yeah, but maybe this really wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah, but maybe I can't trust that. You guys, if God showed up in the way right now you are thinking in your head, if he did that miracle, I would follow him forever. It isn't true. If you based your faith on that one miracle, it would fade. And two years from now, you'd be like, yeah, that was pretty cool. But maybe that was just life sorting itself out. God, I need a new miracle. You would always need a new miracle if your faith was based on miracles. Miracles fade. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know what it is in us that begins to doubt them over time. But that seems to be the way that it works. So is it wrong then to want a miracle, to seek a sign. No. Not if our posture is correct. We have this example in Matthew 8 of a centurion who's definitely here. He's definitely in this place of seeking God. And his servant is really, really sick. And he comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I'm going to ask you to heal my servant who's paralyzed and suffering. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come to your house right now. And the centurion says, I don't need you to come to my house. I know you have authority over this. I know you can do it. Just say the word and it's done. I get how authority works. And Jesus looks at him and says, 
man, I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel. Go ahead, your servant's healed. It's done. He doesn't chide him for asking. But you see the difference between someone sitting in this chair and demanding a miracle of God on their terms to test him and Jesus being like, ugh, why? And you see someone coming to him on behalf of another person here and saying, Jesus, I see this need. Will you meet it? And I have the faith to know that you have the authority to make it happen. And Jesus being like, man, I haven't seen this much faith anywhere. The more I studied this text, you guys, the less that I believe it's about miracles and the more I believe it's about posture. You hear me? The more that I look at this text, the more I really believe it's less about miracles and more about our posture toward God. You guys see the reality of God himself, a God who wants to seek you, who really does, who wants to know you, who wants to be connected to you. What he wants from you is for you to be seeking him too. And again, you guys, if you're hostile to him, he's got patience for you. He'll be around. He's not giving up on you. You can keep your back turned to him and your arms folded for the next decade. And the moment you turn around and you're ready to seek, he will be right there. Right there. You can be indifferent to him. You can just wander about your life and let life do what it's going to do. And the moment that you are ready to seek, he will be right there seeking you. There's a poem that was written in the 1800s. I forget the author's name. I've got it in my notes. Ask me later if you want to, if you want to hear it. But um, in olden times when they would go hunting, they would release hounds, a, a dog, hound dog, okay? And if you were whatever animal they were hunting, a rabbit or a fox or whatever, whatever you were, if that hound caught your scent, you were done. Now, you weren't done immediately because hounds are not the fastest animals in the world, all right? But their noses are really good. So a rabbit can outrun a hound easy. It'll take off, and that hound will just slowly and surely follow your trail until they find the rabbit, and the rabbit takes off again, and the hound just slowly follows the trail. And then until the rabbit is like, sorry, if you're not a hunting person, this may be an awful metaphor, okay? But until basically that animal is just so exhausted that it's like, okay, I'm yours. <laughs> like that's The hound could just outlast it and you couldn't outrun it because it could follow your trail. So there's this poet in the 1800s who's talking about God and you know what they call God? The great hound of heaven. It's one of my favorite titles given to God. The great hound of heaven. Seeking you, won't give up on you, doesn't lose your trail, doesn't get tired, can outlast you. And you're welcome to sit in these chairs as long as you want, but the great hound of heaven will not give up on your scent, ever. That's his posture toward us. What's your posture toward him? Seeking, demanding, testing, arguing? Or just seeking? A couple sentences I want you to sit with this morning. I'm going to have them up on the screen. The first one is this. A seeking heart begins to see miracles all around it, no matter how small. When your heart begins to be soft and open to the Lord, when you're sitting in this chair and you say, God, I want to know you, I want to find you, help me understand who you are, you will be surprised at the miracles that you will begin to see in your life, the signs that God has placed all around you. The second part, though, is difficult because a hostile or indifferent heart won't accept miracles right in front of it, no matter how large. God could perform all kinds of miracles in your face and you'll be blinded to them. You'll reject them. 
You'll think that they're coincidence. You'll wipe them away. You'll dismiss them. What makes Jesus sigh? Our posture when we really don't care. Our posture when all we want to do is make demands of him. You guys, I promise God's posture to you, as painted in the scriptures that we have in front of us, is a God who is seeking you, who won't leave you alone, who will continue to come after you even when your back is turned to him. Three verses I want you to hear. The first is Matthew 6.33. There are a lot of promises for seekers in Scripture. This one says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. Do you hear the language in there? Seek. Seek. Look to this. Jeremiah 29. God says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. You hear that language? No hide and seek. I will be found by you declares God. But the coolest one of all to me, up here on the screen, Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now at the risk of revealing how much of a language nerd I am, okay, I'm going to tell you this. We have three different forms of verbs that we talk about in the English language. So if I'm going to talk about running, I ran tells you that I did that in the past. I am running tells you that I am doing that right now in the future, and I, or in the present. And I will run tells you that I'm going to be doing that sometime in the future, right? The Greeks had more than we do. And this particular language that's in this verse is called the present imperative. So exciting, you guys, language. And basically that means this is an action that is happening and will keep happening. We don't have a word like that. We don't have a phrase like that with our verbs. So this, the best translation of this verse would actually sound like this. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. That's the action that Jesus is asking of us. Seek and keep on seeking. Don't give up on seeking who he is. Ask and keep on asking. And if you do that, you guys, you will not only find yourself in this chair, but you will be amazed at the miracles that your eyes are beginning to be open to all around you every day. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us examine our posture this morning? Help us understand which chair we're sitting in. And I pray for each soul here, God, I know you love them. I know you're seeking them. I know you as the great hound of heaven, you aren't going to leave them alone. But I pray that you'd open eyes that otherwise might be blind. I pray for those who've been seeking you for years. Jesus, would you continue to be found? And we just come with a deep kind of gratitude for a God who won't leave us alone. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the message, we'd love it if you would join us on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. for our Eastview Students High School service. We also want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast and share it to your social media accounts. To stay up to date, check us out on Instagram at EastviewHSM and check out our Eastview Students YouTube channel. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.